Hello, this is the Bible in fewer words. We are Carol and Steve Wells. This is episode 68, Numbers, chapter 31. Hi, Steve. Hi, Carol. Hi, Seth. Great to be here, my friends. Thanks for the invite. Sure. Today, we have the honor to have Seth Andrews on our show. Seth is an activist, author, and speaker. He's the creator and host of the Thinking Atheist online community, podcast, and YouTube channel. Seth has published four books, and his prior calling was that of a Christian radio host before he deconverted. Welcome, Seth. It's great to be here. It's, it's interesting to be on the other side of the Bible. Yeah, it's also interesting, I think, to be a, an atheist and to know more about the Bible now than I, than I knew when I believed it. I don't know. I'm sure that's a common experience for a lot of people. But I'm experiencing I very that. Big. Yeah, right yeah, now. I, when I was a devout believer, I was like, yes, it's true. What's in it? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Uh-huh. And uh, then I went back and started at Genesis 1-1. It was a revelation. And uh, I know that's part of why you do what you do as well. Yes. Steve has been working on this for a long time. And, you know, I kind of know little things here and there, but to really start at the beginning, like you said, and just to go through, and I just have a zillion questions. <laughs> and Steve usually says, well, that's all I know about that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which yeah. works out well. Yeah. Um, Steve, are you yeah. ready? Yeah, I am ready. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So this is chapter 31, the book of Numbers. Verse 1, God said to Moses, take revenge on the Midianites, then you will die. Okay, Um, why are we taking revenge on the Midianites? That's a very good question. It seems to go back to the, um, remember that that previous The whoredom? Yeah, the whoredom with the daughters of, of Moab? Yeah. Well, there's a confusion there. That's chapter 25. It was a couple episodes ago. There's mm-hmm. a confusion between the Mo- the Moabites, the daughters of, of Moab, and the Midianites. So there was one Midianite woman there. Yes. The one who got stabbed by what's it? Uh, Phineas. Phineas. Yeah, she was the only one. The All the others were Moabites. But it really angered God, I guess. And so he's going to take care of it now. Another thing that's strange about it, too, is that Moses... Of course, married a Midianite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So Moses said to the people, go to war against the Midianites. This will be God's revenge on them. I find revenge an interesting concept for God. Actually, I find anger an interesting concept. If you believe in an omnipotent, omniscient Yahweh who knew everything before the creation of everything, past, present, future, God knew what was going to go down before anything went down. Why would God ever be surprised, let alone angry? Before the beginning of space-time, he would have known that all this Mm -hmm. was going to happen. And and yet we see time and again, God just, he sees something happen, he becomes enraged, and then he demands someone to be smote or yeah. smited to be mm-hmm. to, to smate uh, they the people must be smited <laughs> i just made a word up sorry about that. that's great i like it i'm gonna use it anger really asserts that yahweh didn't know it was going to happen so he was surprised and then he got really really irritated and demanded vengeance i find that interesting yeah yeah i am just surprised that he had moses lead the people out of egypt 
and then you know gets angry at them wants to kill him moses convinces him not to and then that just happens over and over again like didn't yeah. he know that these people were going to say hey i'm hungry and i'm thirsty please give me something to yeah. eat like what was his plan there well it's also like that when the israelites they're always making mistakes i actually narrated uh, the audio book of joshua bowen called the atheist handbook to the old testament but i was talking about how interesting it is if you look at the pentateuch the first five books of the old testament the pattern is is that god's people are commanded don't do the thing and then they go and they disobey and they do the thing yeah and then yahweh gets mad and smites them and they say please don't smite us anymore we promise never again to do the thing <laughs> and then five <laughs> minutes passes and the israelites go and do the thing and it's just over and over this sort of fail smite repents fail smite repent cycle that constitutes the bulk of probably the first 30 percent of the bible it's it's almost a comedy of sorts yes yeah, yeah it's pretty much the whole story of exodus you know of the exodus anyway almost every chapter has them complaining about something and then god smiting him for it yeah, yeah but before the real smiting you know sending plagues the horrific plagues yeah yeah well that might be a kind of smite i i don't know this is a philosophical question probably yeah you know <laughs> i don't i don't know this is the kind of stuff we talk about over coffee like would a plague be a smite uh -huh. i don't know I can't remember where we are first now. four i think okay one thousand men from each tribe will go to war Oh, and we just had a census. Yeah, he has 600,000 he found in the census, but they're going to send only 12,000. Mm -hmm. Interesting, too, that he wants all 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel represented. So 1,000 soldiers from each tribe. And then, of course, the attack in verse 7, right? Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that God goes after all the males, right? Men. Yeah. And boys. And he had an expectation that everybody, I mean, the women would be included in that, right? It, yeah. Just go and wipe them out. And so Moses sends everybody in knowing that even, you know, we're talking about old women and young girls and, and pregnant mothers mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, those who are mentally infirm. I mean, it's, it's just the idea that they're sitting there and they must be killed, obviously executed at the, the end of a sword. Moses considers this the righteous act as commanded by Yahweh, who is supposedly the God of goodness. And you and I as moral creatures, we cringe if we had heard uh, that Allah in the Quran had commanded such a massacre. Our moral centers, those alarm bells would be going off. In the Bible, we have been trained often to excuse, to rationalize. And I'll, I'm going to come back to that because I, I had some thoughts about the apologists who want to explain this story. Anyway, sorry, I took us through uh, verse 7, I yes, think. Yes, actually, I, I'm finding that. Not having read the Bible and going through these episodes, I often try to defend God or I, I tell Steve, well, couldn't this have happened? Or maybe this would happen. And, and Steve's just going, hey, what, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, God can defend yeah. himself. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so Steve, I think we're on eight now. Okay. They killed Balaam and the five Midianite kings and took the women and children as captives, burning their cities and took all the possessions, animals, and slaves. Yep. 
That's what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and, and it's interesting that, he, that they killed Balaam, who really had nothing to do with anything here. He's being blamed for that uh, thing with the Moabites, but he was called by the king of Moab and he refused to curse Israel like the king of Moab, Moab wanted him to do. But they killed him anyway here. And the Israelite general, actually, I guess you could call it mercy by taking the women and children. And of course, this is plunder, right? They're all, yes. they're considered property. If you read the Old Testament, um, women are actually considered the property of, of a male, a male dominant. Um, and so, you know, the, the generals say, okay, well, we're going to be merciful. And then in verse 12, they bring these, the women <laughs> and the children and the animals and they present them to Moses and the council. And Moses doesn't say, wow, what a wonderful thing you've done. You, you have demonstrated mercy amid all the blood yeah. and, and rage and chaos. The dust has settled and you have done something so very human and compassionate. But that's not what Moses does. What, what does Moses say? Verse 14, Moses was angry with the officers and said to them, have you saved all the women? Essentially, he said, why did you save the women? These yeah. are women that caused the Israelites through the council of Balaam to trespass against God and bring a plague on the congregation. So the women are being blamed as they often are. I mean, we see this from Genesis 1 oh, yeah. uh, or Genesis 3, rather, where the, the woman is blamed for tempting Adam. Uh, I just recently did a, a series of speeches in uh, Florida and in uh, Phoenix, where we were talking about the penchant throughout the Old Testament as women are blamed for tempting men or leading men astray. They're kind of the sirens who are responsible even when men make a mistake. And Moses does that very same thing here, right? The women caused the Israelites to trespass against God and they brought a plague on the congregation. So if they are indeed being blamed for this great evil, they must be evil, and as such, they must be eradicated. Yep. Right. Blame the women. But all the virgin females keep alive for yourself. So, yeah, Moses is saying, kill all those young men and the non-virgin women. How do you think they figured out who were the virgins and not the virgins, Seth? Which is a great question. Like, how is that determined? And many, we're talking about puberty now. So we're, many of these are preteen girls. Yeah. 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 Huh. Um, it's, it's genuinely horrifying. But all the virgin females keep alive for yourselves. This is the spot where the apologists just make the wrinkles on my forehead crease together. Because they like to say, well... Sure. I mean, God wanted the men and the boys and the non-virgin women. You know, they wanted them executed. But the, the virgin girls, no, no, no. They weren't taken as plunder. They weren't taken to pleasure the soldiers. They weren't forced into a life of servitude or to become a child bride or, or you know, whatever. No, mm -hmm. no, no. The soldiers actually liberated these young virgin girls so that they could start a new chapter and go frolic off into, I don't know, life 2.0. <laughs> and I think, you know, you're playing an incredible game of Twister if you're going to try to make that assertion. I, it's, it's really frustrating to hear because I think anyone who reads the rest of the story and the offensive execution of everybody else, yeah, uh, you know, you can't ignore that. But then once you get into, well, you know, take them. They are now yours. They are your property. 
and the assertion that they are not going to be used as sex slaves or in some other demeaning way to me is just an insult to the text and to our intelligence. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All those young girls starting their new lives. Great. Then we have those of you who have killed these people or touched any of their dead bodies. There's the fascination with dead bodies again, must stay outside the camp for seven days to purify yourselves. After seven days, you'll be clean and can return to camp. I guess they didn't all go. All those soldiers went. I guess the soldiers, the 12,000 soldiers must have been around some dead bodies, right? Yeah. And so they were, they were unclean, so they had, to, they had to get themselves cleaned up. That would seem to be more of a concern to God is getting them cleaned after the, after the massacre than well, certainly than if he wasn't concerned at all. He ordered the massacre. And there's a weird, uh, it's not really an echo because it came before, but in Leviticus, a woman in chapter 15, a woman who is on her period, is she's commanded to leave the village or town for seven days. You know, And anyone who touches her will be unclean kind of thing. You know? So it's... They, they have to be physically removed for yep. seven days instead of what, uh, let's say they were in some way unclean. It seems like that would be a quick remedy, but no, no, a week of exile is required by Yahweh. And, you know, also anything they touch. So anywhere they sat down. Yeah. Wasn't that how she, how a woman lied and said she was on her period. So she couldn't get up from the box where the yeah. figurines oh, were. That's right. <laughs> were hiding. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm laughing, I think, just because of the absurdity and insanity of it, you know, but uh, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. I laugh a lot for that reason. And yeah. just uh, <laughs> usually say, jeepers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you want to take 25, Seth? God said to Moses, take the women and animals and divide them into two parts, one for the soldiers, the other for the congregation, and also include a tribute to me from the soldiers portion one from every 500 to the humans, and animals from the congregation's half give one from every 50 of the humans and animals to the Levites. What is really interesting to me is that God saves some virgins for himself. Yeah, he gets 32 virgins, it turns out. <laughs> uh, I don't think they're going to live very long. Yeah, I think they were intended like the animals for a sacrifice. I don't know what else he would do with them. Yeah. Okay. So we have all those numbers going to all those different congregation. Or... Yeah. We could probably skip all of that because it's a tremendously large number here. We have 675,000 sheep. You know, that's, that's a lot of sheep. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And for them to take care of out in the desert there. And even to bring back. And Midian's a long way away. Yeah. Moab like... is close by, but Midian is pretty far to the south. Anyway, it would have been quite, quite the deal. There is a concept, of course, that um, the earth belongs to the Lord. It's almost like tithing. Whenever people talk about bringing your 10%, you're not actually giving anything to God. You are returning to the storehouse what is God's to begin with. And so if we had read about the plunder of, uh, you know, almost three quarter of a million sheep and 72,000 cows and, and grabbing 32,000 virgins, et cetera. You know, let's just say we acknowledge, let's say we gave them the concept that they were property. We'd be aghast, right? They'd sound like pirates who've just uh, thieves who'd gone uh -huh. in and ransacked the town. But if you look at it 
in the context of, well, it all began, it all belongs to God and God can do whatever he wants. And uh, essentially those people who had taken it, those rebellious people had stolen from God. So he was just simply reclaiming what was his. You know, that's another example, I think, of apologetics rationalization for what is really an alarming act of of uh, pillaging and plundering, thievery, and and just generally immoral behavior. Yeah, I agree. And doesn't also God ask for the firstborn sons back? And if you want to keep them, you have to give a ransom, a ransom. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the same concept. Everybody is His. Everybody and everything. So we could probably skip down and just go to the end down here where we're dealing with the gold and they're going to get quite a bit of gold here. Moses gave the gold jewelry, which weighed 16,750 shekels to Eleazar, the priest. And since a uh, shekel is about 11 grams, that'd be uh, about $12 million. Is that how much the Mormon church was hiding? Well, that was billions. (laughs) They had billions. Okay. (laughs) Interesting too, you know, the Bible spends all this time telling us about avoiding the love of money. But if you read through, and I mentioned the tabernacle, but a lot of this sort of pillaging, Yahweh has an alarming obsession with gold, with the collection of of wealth in that way. I'm reminded of this verse out of uh, Psalm 37. It says, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Uh, We've heard the Bible verse about how the love of money is the root of all evil. Yet it seems to be monetary gain that Yahweh is very interested in, and so much so that much of uh, of what is offered up to him is not necessarily the blood of livestock, but it is physical, it is monetary uh, offering that is given to God, and the idols, for lack of a better word, the temples, the, mm-hmm. uh, the altars that are created in his name are valued often by their construction materials, which very often include gold and the like. It's interesting. I think it's hugely hypocritical, but it is interesting. Oh, yeah. I think, I, you know, I'm thinking of the Catholic Church and their beautiful, you know, huge structures and yeah. their gold. What are those things called? Oh, the monstrances. The monstrances. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just going, oh, that is a lot of money. And there are a lot of poor people here who can't eat and they're giving you that money. Like, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. All right. So, yeah, the last line, Moses and Eleazar brought the gold to the tabernacle as a memorial for the Israelites. Yeah. Remember this stuff. <laughs> 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 Not a good idea, but go ahead and do that. And w- we tend to think about Moses as we cap our conversation here. We tend to think about Moses in our culture as kind of that um, Charlton Heston version of Moses, you yeah. know, from the classic 1950s film. We only really know about about the Pharaoh and the delivery from Egypt, et cetera. And people are not aware of, they're certainly not taught the darker shades of Moses and the nonsensical things about Moses that exist far beyond the liberation of God's chosen people from Egypt. That's a popular story, but it certainly isn't the story. And I think uh, Bible passages like the 31st book of Numbers have great utility in helping to to paint the picture of this mythological character. Again, there's no, we have no historical evidence or proof that an actual Moses existed, but the character of Moses, I think, uh, 
in order to properly understand that, you really do have to go beyond the book of Exodus into texts like Numbers 31, etc. Yeah. When I was doing the research on this, uh, I looked up uh, the Wikipedia article on Numbers 31, and I saw that this, it uh, referred to you and, and, and your book, uh, Deconverted, saying that this was something that a uh, had a large effect on you when you were a Christian. I, I thought maybe you could uh, talk about that a little bit for us. Yeah, it, cer it certainly did. Being an ex-evangelical coming out of 30 years of really Bible literalist Christianity and then, you know, having a sea change in my life and finally listening to the voice of doubt and going back to the Bible to reread it, I was shocked by how much I had either missed or excused and so in my autobiography, Deconverted, which released in 2011, I dedicate a whole chapter to a lot of the stuff that I discovered in the Bible that I had no idea was in the Bible and that I really think most Christians have no idea that's in the Bible. Yeah. And, you know, the story of Numbers 31 was a, a big part of that. And and it also gets into how God really endorsed rape in the Old Testament, often mm -hmm. would mete it out as a punishment to, to women and the devaluing of the female as property of the man and, and slavery and how you could torture, beat up your slaves and all those types of things. And, and so I sort of listed it. But, you know, someone had mentioned to me, and I use this practice in my own discussions with believers, if I had read about these stories in another religious text, in another context, and I like to use Islam, uh, you know, if, if I say, well, the Islamic God Allah sent his general into battle to slaughter everyone in the town, and they rescued the, the women, and, and Allah's soldier was very angry and ordered all the women executed, but the virgin girls saved and given over to the soldiers. You watch Christians hear that story, and you see the red face of indignation come up. That's terrible. It's barbaric. I've said forever that Islam is a barbaric religion, blah, blah, blah. And then you switch it, and you say, well, actually, if I'm going to be completely honest, uh, the story I've just read to you is out of the Christian Bible. And then you give them chapter and verse, and you watch their brain tilt. Dang, 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 dang. They just, it, and it's uh, Dr. John Loftus has commentary about how we can use this model to have these discussions. There's a book called The Outsider Test for Faith, which I found very, very interesting and useful out there. But, but this is one of the stories where I had to make a moral judgment about the story outside of the book that I thought I needed to be moral. I had to make a judgment call beyond the book that I, I thought I needed to make the judgment call. And I became conscious of that. And once I began to give myself permission to say, this is immoral, this makes no sense, this is cruel, it's barbaric, it's primitive, it's obviously a product of its time and of human hands. The second I liberated myself to be able to do that, it allowed me to look at so many other religious tenets and claims and dogmas and apply the same standard, and it really liberated my life. Yeah. Uh, did, were you aware of uh, Numbers 31 when you were a Christian? I may have read over it like I read the story of Jericho. 
you know, it's an, which is another great example. I don't want to, you know, put the cart before the horse, mm -hmm. but if we talk, we used to sing the song as children. Joshua yeah. fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a tumbling down and it was beautiful. He blew the trumpets and God was victorious, but we didn't get into the nuts and bolts. We didn't get into the details where God's army went in and slaughtered everybody. And I think the animals, including the enemy, just horrible. It's just a bloodbath. We yeah. didn't get into that. It was more about, well, the walls fell and God was victorious. That's how we read the Old Testament. It's like uh -huh. we read the story of Noah's Ark. God saved eight people. We didn't read it as, you know, the planet drowned horribly and blah, blah, blah. We didn't, we didn't look at it in those terms. It was a story about goodness, but we had really been programmed, I think, by family culture, our churches, our our uh, religious and uh, the whole religious culture all around us we've been trained to to pick out the good see the silver lining and ignore the dark cloud but you know you get into numbers 31 and stories like it and you really spend time there and i think you start to see the dark cloud acknowledge it and then decide what to do with it yeah yeah as a Young Catholic, my dad would say, read your Bible, but he did not want us to read our Bible. <laughs> he wanted us to go to church and listen to the priest interpret that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way of, uh, they spoon feed whatever morsels they want and you get on with, and essentially live a secular life the rest of the week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, many people will come to me and say, you just don't want people to read the Bible. And I'm like, no, I, in truth, I want them like, please. Please read the Bible and don't read it like a love letter. Read it like you would read any other book. Mm -hmm. Start at Genesis 1-1, take the journey and just objectively as, as best you can, try to see where the journey takes you and you just might be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do is read the Bible with people and yeah. we'll see. We'll see where it takes Good us. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. Thank you so much, Seth. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being with us. Uh-huh. Bye-bye.